Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for November 17th, 2021. Hello and welcome back to Foreign Exchanges. Uh, it's very nice to have you here. This uh, particular episode is for subscribers only, and uh, it's an interview, which we don't do many subscriber-only interviews, or we haven't in the past. I think uh, that will probably change going forward what with the whole American prestige thing going on and um, you know most of my free to the public interviews will probably go uh, out via American prestige but uh, that doesn't mean we can't still do interviews here and in particular uh, we're uh, very lucky to be joined today by Michael Franzak uh, Mike uh, is a postdoctoral fellow in global order at the Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's got a book coming out sometime next year. I think it's too soon to be pre-ordering it, but keep an eye out for it. It's called Global Inequality and American Foreign Policy in the 1970s. Uh, it will be available from Cornell University Press. Uh, and more to the point, uh, Mike has been writing, or, or wrote, I should say, three pieces uh, for foreign exchanges uh, from the COP26 Climate Summit. Uh, if you haven't seen those already, uh, I'll post links to them in the show description, but please check them out. It was uh, a new project, a new type of project, really, for foreign exchanges, a little bit of actual reporting work, which uh, we don't usually do on the newsletter, but uh, hopefully you guys found it uh, valuable, and um, you know, hopefully maybe we can do more projects like that moving forward. Uh, so I'm very glad to have him here to sort of wrap up the conference. Uh, he was there for the first week, but it continued for another week and just wrapped up actually on Saturday, a uh, day later than it was supposed to, uh, with the completion and agreement uh, to a final uh, COP26 statement uh, that doesn't seem to have satisfied too many people. Um, I mean, it satisfied if you if you enjoy the burning of coal, let's say, and the uh, byproducts of that, you're probably okay with this uh, the outcome of the summit. But uh, uh, otherwise, I'm not so sure. So we'll talk to Mike about that. I want to talk to him about uh, the history of the COP summits, because you know we are on the number 26 now. So uh, I'd like to get in a little bit to the history of these summits um, uh, of U.S. participation in them. Uh, I think people are uh, presumably familiar with the famous Paris Agreement uh, from a few years back that uh, committed everybody in a vague and unenforceable way. Uh, sorry to laugh, but you kind of have to laugh about this stuff or else uh, it just despair all the way down. Uh, committed everybody to uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, of warming, which is um, what scientists at the time said was a reasonable target, given how much warming humanity had already caused, uh, to avoid the worst impacts, not all impacts, but the worst impacts uh, of global temperature increases. Uh, we have since since committing to a 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, temperature increase and to taking action to limit carbon emissions commensurate with that goal, uh, humanity has now put itself in a position where 1.5 degree temperature increase is basically 
the absolute best case scenario if we all did everything perfectly uh, correctly from like tomorrow on. Um, it, it's a pipe dream, in other words, I think, uh, sad to say. Uh, and so we're instead scrambling to try to just keep emissions as low as possible moving forward and to keep temperatures as uh, the temperature increase as limited as possible. Uh, this COP26 summit was supposed to be 1.5 degrees Celsius's last hurrah, the last chance to get the world to really sign on to binding hard commitments, uh, making the difficult choices to do things like getting rid of coal, uh, drastically phasing out oil and natural gas, taking the steps that would be necessary uh, to limit emissions. Uh, and, and, you know, given how, how much damage we've already done to try and uh, keep the rest of it, uh, to keep any future damage to a minimum. Uh, they don't seem to have accomplished that, but we'll get into that with Mike. Um, like I said, we'll talk about the history of these summits, including uh, the one that produced the Paris Agreement. Uh, we'll talk about the history of U.S. participation in them, and then we'll talk a little bit about his experience uh, and what he's uh, made of the final statement uh, from the summit and whether he thinks we are uh, on the path to a successful uh, climate future or uh, catastrophe. I suspect catastrophe, but we'll see. Uh, so with that all said, I'm going to get Michael on the Zoom here, and we will start the interview. All right, everybody. As I said in the introduction, I am very lucky to be joined by Michael Franzak, postdoctoral fellow uh, in Global Order at the Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Michael is uh, has been writing for foreign exchanges for uh, or wrote for foreign exchanges uh, uh, earlier this month three pieces uh, from the sidelines of the COP26 climate summit, uh, and he's here now to talk about. Uh, some of the background of the summit and his experiences and uh, what transpired after he left as, as everybody came to a uh, heavily compromised, I think we could say, uh, <laughs> final agreement. So, uh, Mike, thank you very much for being here. Uh, I'm glad to have you and uh, uh, kind of put the, the cap on your, your series here. Sure. Thank you very much for the introduction, Derek, and for, for having me on uh, Foreign Exchanges. All right, so um, let's start off before we get into the COP26 summit in Glasgow, which just happened. Uh, can you sort of take us through uh, the history of these big UN climate summits, and even you know before that, kind of the the context in which this uh, this annual, almost annual, I guess they didn't do one last year because of COVID, but uh, this series of summits. Um, kind of emerged from. Can you take us take us through that history? Sure. So um, that history, the climate summits really begin in, in 1992. That's when the UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, is uh, started and agreed to. And the COPs, or Conference of the Parties, are uh, annual meetings which started in 1995 and which uh, negotiate the uh, treaty. So you can kind of think of it, the analog would be like the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, where they set out a, a treaty and then they return uh, every so often, um, in this case, once every year to negotiate it. So that started in the 1990s. Um, and there's some really critical moments there that we'll talk about. But I actually want to start a bit earlier, 20 years earlier, in uh, 1972. 
because this is when global environmental governance begins with the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment in 1972. Uh, this leads to the founding of UNEP, the UN Environmental Program, which is the first global environmental governance institution, but which has pretty much been on the sidelines since the 1990s. It's been replaced uh, uh, by this uh, climate change process. But there's some important things that happen at Stockholm. Um, this is the uh, Nixon administration, and Nixon uh, has, has something of a reputation for being kind of canny on the environment because it was popular, and Nixon liked to do things that were <laughs> popular. Um, so uh, there's actually a, a pretty um, a pretty serious initiative coming from the White House to to make this a reality. Um, a guy named Russell Train, who founded the World Wildlife Fund, uh, one of the founders, is, is the leader of this. Um, and the idea is to negotiate a uh, global environmental uh, package with uh, a new institution at the center. And the U.S. was going to be the uh, biggest pledge, biggest donor, and was going to lead the way. Um, so it's kind of this this really like interesting moment in, in American multilateralism where environment is just coming on the scene and uh, uh, there's an opportunity here. What's interesting is that there were three conferences on the environment that year that the U.S. was a part of. One was the U.S. and the OECD countries, and that didn't really go anywhere. It created some studies. Another was East-West uh, to advance detente. That really didn't go anywhere. The only successful one was the North-South Conference, which is Stockholm. So um, basically, the U.S. comes to the Stockholm Conference pledging um, uh, $40 million for, for a new environmental fund and um, uh, basically uh, to hammer out some global rules on pollution. Um, what happens is a pretty dramatic North-South showdown because this becomes a conference, not just about environment, but about development. And this defines global environmental negotiations to the present. Um, the group of 77 developing countries, this is, was a negotiating group uh, uh, of Global South countries founded in 1964 at the UN. Um, the organization that birthed it, UNCTAD, the UN Conference on Trade and Development isn't so influential now, but the group of 77, uh, as I saw at COP26, it's now the group of 77 plus China. I'll explain why, but uh, are incredibly unified and um, influential. So North-South has always been uh, a central component of global environmental governance. So I'll run through Stockholm real quick. Um, developing countries almost do not show up. And the reason is because they rightly, at this point, feel that um, uh, environmental pollution from industrialization is uh, primarily a rich man's game. And they fear that developing the developed countries are going to kick away the ladder um, just as they're trying to industrialize. Um, that and there's, doesn't, there's that some... doesn't sound like the developed countries I know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there was some truth to that. Kick away the ladder. Um, Come on. Yeah, right. I know. Um, but but this is uh, uh, this kind of sets up a, a conflict. So they almost don't show up. Um, the reason they show up is because of a guy named Maury Strong. 
Maurice or Maury Strong is a really interesting figure. He's an oil exec, Canadian oil executive turned development gadfly. And basically he gets the prominent develop, development economists, including ones from the global south, on board with this. And he reaches out personally to Indira Gandhi and convinces her. He says this, if the rich countries, uh, uh, if only the rich countries are at the conference, then the rich countries decide everything. So they do show up. Uh, the South shows up. It's a, a pretty robust North-South debate over many of the issues that still uh, 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 linger today, like technology transfer um, and balancing uh, development with environmental protection. When, when does that start for developing countries? And a key principle that emerges at Stockholm that defines everything up to the present is CBDR, Common but Differentiated Responsibility. And this says that rich countries, because they created pollution in the 70s and then later global warming as in climate change, as, as we uh, know now, have a responsibility to act first. Um, so it places uh, uh, it, the responsibility on rich countries. Um, so this is something that the US had to accept as a condition for the conference being a success. The administration wanted it to be a success and that meant they had to come and talk about development. Um, so uh, long and short of it is um, uh, a lot of the debates that have been happening in the 60s come up again about technology transfer and trade and finance and commitments. Um, one particularly interesting part is, is that uh, UNAP is headquartered in Nairobi, which is weird, right? Because most of these things are headquartered in Geneva or something. Right. Uh, the, the reason is... Um, because the Kenyan delegation under the, the Jomo Kenyatta government um, lobbied very hard within the South and with the North to have it in Nairobi. And the reason was because they wanted to, they, the developing countries, wanted to make UNEP a vehicle for real technology transfer and the creation of knowledge in the South. So the brain drain, you know, all these countries, Obama's father, you know, was was uh, a Kenyan who went to the United States. He actually came back. But many, you know, there was a, a brain drain that was a real serious um, issue. And uh, sadly, uh, today, still the global north uh, are the um, centers of knowledge production. Um, but that's what happens at, at UNEP so, or at Stockholm. And UNEP is established in 1972 with this pledge from the U.S., we're going to, uh, it's voluntary, but we're going to give it because we owe it to the world and to developing countries and so on. Um, the voting structure is one country, one vote. So unlike the IMF or World Bank or something, where it's quota based, um, it's one country, one vote, like the General Assembly, which means developing countries can control the agenda. So these two conditions are established. One, contributions are voluntary from rich countries but they have a responsibility. And two, it's one country, one vote, so developing countries can determine the agenda. So unsurprisingly, um, <laughs> perhaps US uh, support for, for UNEP um, flounders, but, but a, a, big, <laughs> no. a, big, a, a big, I know, but a big reason is, so this is 1972, right? Um, and this is seen as a big success for North-South relations, for the environment, um, and then 1973, 
the oil crisis. 1974, May 1st, the new international economic order proposed by the group of 77, um, uh, uh, demanding a, a total restructuring of the uh, patently unfair Bretton Woods system that was negotiated mostly over their heads uh, in 1944. So the rest of the 70s gets mired in the North-South dialogue negotiations, which is what my book is about. Um, and uh, then UNEP enters a, another phase in the 80s, which I can talk about, but I know I've been talking for a while. So if you have any uh, questions. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, let's keep on this line. Let's let's go and sure. get, okay. get us through this uh, history to, let's to, get, let's know, get the, to 92. the summits and, and today. Yeah, you know, let's do today. that. So. Because a lot Here's of these themes happens. are still, um, I mean, you know, as you said, the, the sort of developing, developed push-pull is is a huge factor. It's amazing to see um, that the G77 is, is this uh, united and powerful. That said, I can also talk about the many, many, many confusing negotiating groups that exist within it, which did not exist in the 1970s. So you could, you know, you could have Venezuela or Algeria speaking for the G77, and it kind of makes sense, but um, we'll get there. So the 80s, um, this is when UNEP enters a, a new phase and, and a successful one in the sense that two major agreements are negotiated um, in 1985. And these are kind of tell you kind of what's coming ahead. So in 1985, there's uh, an ozone agreement, which leads in 1987 to the Montreal Protocol that banned chlorofluorocarbons. Um, now, uh, this was a, a big success, and it was UNEP's success. Um, Ronald Reagan called it the uh, something like the ideal multilateral agreement, or the ideal international agreement. Now, why would it be ideal international agreement for, the, for Ronald Reagan or for any U.S. administration, really? And that's because the Montreal Treaty... Um, asked nothing. <laughs> so during the few years Perfect. before this, um, so during the few years before this, you know, DuPont is, is making these CFCs and, right. um, uh, you know, they still, the, the cost hasn't, hasn't, the cost for replacement hasn't met the point where it makes economic sense. So of course they keep using them until general, uh, just outcry in the U S and elsewhere and protests, uh, uh, and substitutes, most critically, lead to um, it makes sense to replace it. It's cheap, just like renewables today. It's cheaper now to invest in renewables. So this was a very easy agreement because DuPont had already agreed to phase it out when Reagan went to Montreal. So um, this kind of uh, uh, tells you a sense of like what kind of multilateral agreements the United States is looking for, which are Ones that one, the U.S. can feel that it has a sense of that it's leading things, um, but two, that doesn't cost money or surrender an iota of U.S. sovereignty. So that's what gets us into the 1990s. It kind of sets a precedent, um, an environmental precedent. There's other precedents in international economic negotiations, but an environmental precedent for how multilateralism and global governance will look after the Cold War. So, uh, I mean, attention obviously, you know, begins to shift from um, issues like ozone and, and kind of air pollution and those sorts of things, which, uh, I, I mean, I gather like the miracle of the ozone agreement is still the, the sort of 
it's like the thing that that everybody clings to in the hope of of solving climate mm-hmm. change, which uh, seems a little baffling to me at this point, having <laughs> watched what's been happening for the last few years. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, attention, you know, shifts to to climate change, and we get into this series of um, summits, the the COP summits. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, most people I think are are familiar with. The Paris Agreement, which was the product of a, a, a previous COP summit, and is sort of like the you know Rosetta Stone these days of of uh, uh, the environmental or the the climate change movement. It's uh, you know this vague and unenforceable commitment to do something to keep us at one point five degrees warming. But can you talk a little bit about this series of summits and and you know what were some of the other kind of um, milestones along the way and 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 particularly you know what has been the united states role in in these summits and how engaged has it been Mm -hmm. sure so the u.s has been uh very engaged in these summits with uh a few exceptions um trump and uh some years in the bush administration weren't very helpful but uh this starts um the ipcc the intergovernmental panel on climate change that's um Uh, formed in 1988. That's the scientific advisory body. So when they put out their assessment and say it's a code red for humanity, that's who we're listening to. That's who's uh, informing a lot of the the debate. Um, The UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, is founded in 1992 at the Rio conference. It's commonly referred to as the Earth Summit, which makes you think of, you know, one, we're all on planet Earth and one planet together. And together, but but it's actually the uh, Rio Conference on Environment and Development. Um, so uh, again, like when you want to start discussing climate change or anything that's going to cost money, you have to talk about development and who's going to pay for things. Um, so at, at, at Rio, there's there's three treaties that are actually negotiated, and and the one that's important is is the UNFCCC. There's two other ones on. I think one in deforestation and one in something else, but uh, uh, this is the big one. So what it is, is a treaty that says everyone has to, all all countries have to come together and uh, uh, figure this out. Here's what we want to do. There was a commitment in 1992 to limit uh, climate change, rise in temperature to 1990 levels by 2010, something like that. You know, you have these goals today. Um, So they set like an initial goal. Um, and then they said, all right, go implement this, go negotiate this. Uh, so COP1 starts in 1995 in Berlin. And that's where, uh, you know, the opening shots fired. Um, and it's actually, uh, uh, this message is delivered by Angela Merkel, uh, who's then, I think, foreign minister, um, maybe finance minister, but I think foreign minister in 1995. Um, and she delivers uh, uh, introduces the successful Berlin Mandate, and the Berlin Mandate uh, outlines CBDR, Common but Differentiated Responsibility. It says uh, climate change is a threat to us all, um, but the rich countries started it created this problem, and you could really say that in in 1995 or 1992 when China and India hadn't caught up um, uh, in terms of emissions. You could really say the rich countries, including the Soviet Union, um, started this problem, caused it, and must act first to solve it. So 
this is how we get into uh, Kyoto. There's been two big, Paris is one of the big uh, agreements that then go on to be negotiated for several years. Paris replaced Kyoto, which was the first big agreement. And uh, what Kyoto did is set um, binding international limits. So it would be set not in terms of each country's emission, but in an overall goal and a, a formula. But it said that uh, an international body would determine how much you would be able to admit, and then you would have to uh, adhere to that. But it only applied to the developed countries. And uh, this was where the US um, uh, sandbagged it, basically. Um, at the first COP, the, the Clinton administration did not challenge CBDR. It was fine with everything that had been said uh, at Rio, um, which was under the H.W. Bush administration and the U.S. Congress signed that and didn't have any problems with it, um, as far as I know. Uh, but uh, this is when you start having problems because Clinton and Congress throw down the gauntlet in the Byrd-Hagel resolution. And it's amazing how little this is known or understood or remembered in the United States, because I swear to God, I talked to five different people who told me without prompting of their frustration with first Kyoto and Bert Hagel right. and then Paris and the U.S. leaving that. So yeah. here's what happens with Bert Hagel. Bipartisanship, at least. By 90, 95 to zero. You <laughs> literally could not. I, I can't think of, you know, people would say like, uh, yeah, the puppies and cupcakes day, you know, would get. <laughs> but no, like that wouldn't like this. This is the only thing. But here's the remarkable conditions that no other country proposes, but only the U.S. One, the, this is in the Byrd-Hagel, so uh, Senator Harry Byrd from West Virginia, where there's also a climate skeptic, <laughs> Joe Manchin from West Virginia today, who's holding up a lot of these things. Well, back then it was Her uh, Harry Byrd, uh, West Virginia, and uh, uh, Chuck Hagel, um, who's, who's since um, made, really made a name for himself as a climate advocate. Um, uh, and I think takes the issue very seriously, but here was their resolution. Um, two conditions. The United States would not sign any international agreement on climate change unless A, the major, the, the quote, key developing countries, which meant China, India, Mexico, Brazil, maybe one or two others also made pledges or not, not and, but or uh, if the agreement harms the U.S. economy, that is, raises prices at home, which, you know, you can interpret that <laughs> with tremendous latitude. I love like, things that are completely subjective because you can do anything you want then. That har serious causes serious harm or threatens serious harm to the U.S. economy. It's, it's but there's, like there's a little really... of that in the COP26 <laughs> agreement I think we can talk about later. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, so th this is the gauntlet thrown down by Bert Hagel, 95 to nothing. And, and uh, Clinton signs the agreement, um, the Kyoto Accords, but um, doesn't send it to Congress and, of course, and says it's a work in progress. And um, they spend the next few years arguing over Kyoto. Some countries are, are, are starting to um, uh, make some progress. Some of the progress is just, like, incidental from, like, 
the Soviet Union collapsing and the Eastern <laughs> Bloc collapsing. Like, wow, they reduced their emissions from 1990. This is amazing. Um, so, well, and we had uh, a pandemic. The same, the same thing happened. Yeah, right? Right. Incidental. Yeah, if only. <laughs> Look we at could all these reductions. It. So, so that's that's what happened. Um, a few countries changed, but but so so we drag our feet. Um, then uh, Bush administration comes to power uh, and cites Bird Hagel and Clinton to the letter. This exempts eighty percent of the world from uh, emissions uh, reductions. Therefore, the United States is not effective. The United States should not sign it. It will raise energy prices at home. So it's only the U.S. who is who is saying this. Um, like there are other countries who who have an interest in this not going forward as as much as we need. But um, it's interesting how brazen they are sometimes. So there is one more thing that I didn't want to forget that I learned recently that was included in in Kyoto, and this is where the frustration comes in, because Kyoto was watered down. The U.S. is the lowest common denominator. It's primus inter pares, but also the lowest common denominator. So everything has to adjust to what the U.S. is going to put up with. And that's what happened at Kyoto with the focus on uh, uh, market mechanisms uh, as opposed to non-market mechanisms. And we can talk about Article 6, which was was finished uh, at COP26, more or less. Uh, the, the market mechanisms that we've been trying to get since the 90s were finished, but the non-market ones were not. So... It was it was scaled down um, per a lot of U.S. conditions. Here's the uh, really astonishing one that I thought was scandalous, um, and I I, I have a, a paragraph of Stuart Eisenstadt, old Carter hand who was in the Clinton administration, bragging about this exemption. How much do you think uh, U.S. military emissions are counted as uh, <laughs> by anyone? By anyone, the Pentagon, the UNFCCC, none. <laughs> so this was Fantastic. an exemption that we that the, the UNFCCC would not. Uh, and this is U.S. totally pushed for it. I mean, as the biggest military, of course, it, it totally pushed for it and uh, saw it as a success. Now, the U.S. military is the single largest institutional emitter of carbon in the world. Um, it's higher than uh, it, it releases more more uh, fossil fuels than uh, or uh, fossil fuel emissions than um, most countries in the world, including many developed countries. Um, so I thought this was pretty scandalous, but I guess it's par for the course. Well, and that can, um, that continues to the present day, right? I mean, the U.S. military talks about climate change in terms of a national security threat and an adaptation problem. But it's still belching out carbon, you know, at a higher rate than any other institution. And, and there's no I get no sense that that's being counted now any more than it was back then. It's it's putting solar panels on a, a, a Navy fleet with fighter jets on it. I mean, I, I think it really is. Um, uh, I mean, there are people who in the military who take it in the Pentagon who take it very seriously. They do. Um, uh, but not. But do they take they, it, they do they take they it seriously in the sense blindness. of like we have to change our it's, own behavior or is no. Okay. So they have a strange blindness to that. So, <laughs> you know, you can say like, okay, yeah, well, well, drone warfare is is more uh is a green 
warfare, you know. But the real issue is, you know, what's the worst thing that you can that you can burn is fighter jet fuel. Right. And all of these military. Well, luckily, the planes only um, fly half the time now anyway. So. Yeah, right. So, (laughs) um, yeah, so uh, that is a pretty scandalous exemption, I thought. But um, that's kind of the precedent set is, is the bar being lowered so that the U.S. will join and the U.S. declaring Clinton really made climate change. He said, this is this is going to renew America's mission around the world and will also transform, update the American economy for the information age. You know, this is the 90s, pro-globalization, pro-technology, uh, 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 this new revolution that's going to uh, transform everything for the better if we only nudge it in the right right direction. Um, so the bar's lowered on Kyoto, and then the administration doesn't sign it. So fast forward 10 years, and uh, you have not had um, overall reductions in greenhouse gas emissions from developed countries. And um, at the same time, China and India are using a lot of coal to develop, um, still emitting far less per capita than than developed countries and especially the US. Um, But on on the path to uh, being serious contributors to climate change as well. So what what I believe is that the Clinton administration's inaction, the U.S. inaction after with Kyoto, saying if, if China and India don't do anything, then uh, we're not going to do anything. I, I don't think it makes sense. Um, uh, from, it doesn't make sense from a, a long-term perspective, but it also did something really critical, which is delay mitigation efforts in the 90s and 2000s. And if we had started seriously back then, we wouldn't be having the problem today with how to live in a 1.2 degree or 1.5 degree or a two degree world is a death sentence for the Maldives as, as the uh, head of the delegation said. Um, so we wouldn't be having this, this huge fight over adaptation today and struggle to come up with this money um, if, if we had actually mitigated in, in the 1990s and saying that it just gave everyone an excuse if the U.S. is backing out. So I want to get into this year's summit, uh, which has been advertised for months as the last chance to the last gasp for the Paris Agreement mm-hmm. and the last chance to yeah. you know, sort of keep everybody to somewhere in the, the 1.5 degree range, which has gone uh, over the last several years from like – this is a tough but realistic standard to me too. This is like fantasy land, basically. It's like the best yeah. possible case scenario uh, if we do everything perfectly, uh, and we're not going to do that. But let's still try to, you know, hold on to it. Uh, so we've gone, you know, the 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 summit. This summit was advertised as kind of the last chance for the world to yeah. uh, hold on to this standard and. Um, before we get into the final uh, agreement, and even before we get into uh, one of the things I want to talk about, the, the debate uh, between the ongoing debate between you know the developed and developing worlds, um, mm-hmm. I just want to get your sort of impressions uh, from that week, from the week that you were there. Um, anything that stood out to you? You know, there were a lot of accusations of uh, things like greenwashing. You know, countries kind of yeah. inventing. 
environmentally friendly histories that were thrown around, especially about uh, the United States for one, certainly, but like Brazil and some other places. Uh, there was a, an agreement on deforestation that, uh, you know, a bunch of countries signed on to this pledge to uh, eliminate deforestation. And then like Indonesia immediately quit, like they signed on to it and then immediately quit. And they were like, no, no, it's not, it's not about, we're not, de- we're not going to end deforestation. Uh, so that, I mean, that was a, a very strange thing. I wondered if you followed that at all. And also, um, the the protests that went on outside the conference, I, I'm mm-hmm. curious whether any of that penetrated. I'm, I'm sort of, a, in general, a pessimistic about the ability of mass action to influence uh, high-level politics like, you know, something like this summit. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, with you having been there, did, was there any any sense of the the protests seeping into the, the conference or any acknowledgement of uh, that it was going on? Sure. So that's, I mean, that's a lot um, yeah. of stuff, but it's basically just no, no, like, no, no, you know, what, what stuck out to you from that week that you were there? Yeah. Um, before, before I answer both of those questions, the protests and what stuck out, um, I'll just say that, that, the Paris Agreement was the updated version of Kyoto. So in 2015, basically, we went from internationally determined, legally binding contributions for developed countries to uh, nationally determined contributions, NDCs, uh, for all countries. So your, your CBDR is kind of out the window now with Paris, and everybody has to do something. Um, so what COP26 was about was implementing the Paris rulebook. Uh, and keeping 1.5 alive. Those were kind of the two slogans um, of the conference. I'll say this first before I get into some of the things that that were debated and and agreed to or not. Um, uh, What stuck out to me, something very interesting and and, uh, uh, amusing but serious, is um, Brazil and Australia. Because Brazil sent the largest delegation of any country. They had, I think, three pavilions. Um, so there's this pavilion area that's basically like a trade, sh- imagine like a science fair or trade show for countries and, and some NGOs to show off their, their climate plans and, and so on. Um, Brazil sent the largest delegation. They had beautiful, beautiful uh, pavilions of uh, recreations of the Amazon the wonders of the Amazon and, and uh, uh, you know, lots of videos, great wine events. Um, uh, Australia, Australia had uh, stole the show because it had like from 8 a.m. to midnight, like when these things go late, um, the best coffee, free lattes, espresso, cappuccinos, there's always a line and a full crowd <laughs> of Australia. Now in the negotiations, now in the negotiations, this is how cheap soft power is. <laughs> because in the negotiations, of course, they're all big stinkers. Um, and uh, I don't know what the final uh, stance of Brazil in the deforestation pledge was. I, I, I thought they had signaled that they, they were going to sign it. There's, there's yeah. also like side agreements. Okay. Right. Um, well, Australia, I know, uh, was was very happy about China or about India taking the hit for the coal. Uh, commitments oh, about watering sure. down yeah. the language on phasing out coal. So but that's that's yeah. one of the things they, we'll, they we'll talk about when we talk about the the agreement, week. the final agreement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so before that, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll there's it's it's funny. I mean, they, the Gulf states look like Apple stores. 
<laughs> all glass, you know. And, nice. Um, but the uh, protest. Um, so the the cops operate. There's a blue zone and a green zone. So inside the blue zone are um, all of the. There's three groups. There's uh, delegates and members of government. There are journalists and press, and there are observers, um, which uh, are mostly NGOs and some universities, and that's how I was there. Um, and uh, uh, so they're all all milling about inside um, and all have to stand outside. So there's two issues of equity that happened at the, at the COP. So there's outside, there's the protests, um, and I don't, I really can't speak to how those were, were handled, um, which tells you the the blinkers that you have on inside the blue zone, like you go in there and yeah. you get there at eight and you, you like, I, it was like 12 hour days, you know, like inside all the time, there's always meetings happening. There are five meetings on, on adaptation at the same time. So, you know, countries had a real problem, uh, having enough people at all of the meetings, um, because of COVID and COVID restrictions, it was very difficult to, to get for some delegations to get, um, enough people. Um, there was the issue of room space. So they, I don't know if there was something conspiratorial about this, but people suggested it that they intentionally scheduled meetings and rooms that didn't have enough space that were really important. So observers couldn't sit in. I, I, I don't know about that, but the, the first two days um, were, were, first three days were pretty much a mess, uh, especially the, the two days where le world leaders were there. And something really funny was, was that I think it was Wednesday or Thursday night after the world leaders had left and things had calmed down and you could get into meetings now. The the uh, COP26 president, Alok Sharma, and, and the UK government sent out an email to everyone saying, we hear you and understand about the issues of uh, accessibility and et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to hold a meeting, you know, me, Alex Sharma, and, and all of you, the observers and delegates who are concerned, um, uh, tomorrow morning to discuss this very important issue. And then an hour later, they sent an email that saying that it was canceled. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> well, they tried. So, you know, they tried. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll say that, like, there, there are, there, there are, you know, some, some like, risible and, and frankly, sometimes depressing things. But uh, I will say the, the, what, where the inspiration comes from and where the, I think where the real uh, talent and dedication is, I mean, negotiators, everyone shows up, they know they have to give something and we'll talk about how that's equitable or not, but uh, the secretariat and the uh, uh, bureaucrats who hold the meetings, who so you have like co-facilitators in meetings to manage them um, and to hear from countries and something that the G77 said a lot is that process is sometimes substance, which means if they're not heard in the negotiations, well, that's confirming their pessimism from since, you know, since uh, this stuff started um, many, many decades ago, uh, you know, from the 1950s and the gas uh, and so on. So uh, th that's very important um, uh, to the South and the uh, facilitators and everyone in the secretariat, uh, they work you know, for just 14 hours nonstop uh, uh, on on this. So I'll just say that they're, I'm, I'm really impressed by them. And it gives you the sense of the, the Gramsci uh, maxim 
pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. They're the optimism of the will part. The, the, dele- the, the countries, yeah. <laughs> some of the delegates are the pessimism of the intellect. <laughs> uh, so let's, I mean, let's get into the, the you know, sort of broadly mm-hmm. speaking, it seemed like there were two uh, main tracks that this, co- this summit went down. One had to do with the regulating the carbon offset market. Um, and I want to, I want to talk about that, but I want to first get into the other track, which was this sort of unending debate, really. I mean, it's, it's continued as you laid out, you know, for, uh, you know, going on 50 years now, uh, between the developed world, which has done most of the polluting and most of the admitting, emitting, uh, and the developing world, which, um, you know, has borne the brunt of, of all of that. Um, there's a couple of things here that I, I, I want to talk about. One is um, whether you have a sense, it, it seems to me that there is uh, an obvious kind of schism, and I maybe it's not manifest because they've been able to uh, stick together as a negotiating block, but it seems to me there's an obvious schism now within the developing world between countries like India, um, China, I mean, we can debate whether China is a developing country on, uh, you know, on a per capita basis, there, there's still an argument to be made that it is. Uh, but, you know, India, China, countries that are burning a lot of coal and feel entitled to burn that coal because, hey, the developed world got to do this on their way up the mm-hmm. ladder. And, they, you know, it's not fair that we should be denied that same opportunity. And, and, other members of the developing world who are being, I mean, are paying for this are, you know, the Maldives you mentioned, you know, in a two degree world, the Maldives ceases to exist. There are island nations in the, the Pacific that cease to exist under uh, many of these scenarios. Uh, is there a, a, a grow, is there sort of a divide there between these, these two groups of uh, countries or, or if not, you know, do you see the potential for, for one? Well, that's a good question. Um, they're, they're, uh, yes, as you pointed out, there are manifestly different interests um, between, uh, say, China and the small island developing states um, like the Maldives um, and, and what uh, they're after in the negotiations. Um, and uh, one thing that they unite on is uh, climate finance, but they have different priorities for it. Um, and this is where we really get into life or death and the next 10 years as opposed to 2050. So uh, this was the other part of my question here is the the debate over uh, which you laid out in in, uh, Mm -hmm. one of your pieces for for the newsletter, uh, the debate between financing the transition to clean energy versus financing uh, adaptation to the damage that is already happening and is going to happen no matter what we do uh, in terms of the transition. And even, you know, beyond that, it seems to me there's a there's a debate that the developed world just refuses to have uh, over compensation for the damage that's already been done, that, that you know, the, our, our emissions have already mm-hmm. done to these countries. Um, can you so, yeah, I mean, you know, bring that, I guess, you know, uh, that that certainly should be a part of the discussion as well. Beautiful. Let's talk finance. Um, so uh, the big story uh, on finance, three issues. One, um, and you, you nailed it with the um, mitigation versus adaptation funding. It's always been 
unbalanced. Uh, last year, um, OECD countries, uh, 20% of their climate aid was for adaptation, which is for you know, the world that we're living in now, where island countries uh, need this money. It's going to make Otherwise, they have to spend half of their their GDPs or budgets um, uh, uh, on it. Um, so there's there's this uh, hundred billion dollar promise that was made ten years ago. They said the developed countries said we're going to deliver by 2020 100 billion dollars annually in climate aid. Now, what is what kind of climate aid? Well, they count high interest loans. As climate aid, so one thing that small island states really need and, and, and uh, developing countries really need is insurance because investors don't want to send FDI there if they might be, you know, their, their hotel might be wiped out by a tropical storm. So you really, like, even if the money exists, it doesn't mean it's going to get to those countries. So rich countries are counting that in the 100, of 100 billion, and they still got the 80 billion. They only got the 80 billion. So that was not resolved. There was the expectation that um, uh, they would be able to make 100 billion collectively in commitments um, on climate finance, even with double counting and counting, uh, you know, dubious kinds of finance. So that was a failure of the conference um, and a pretty pathetic one, considering that the U.S. military budget is uh, what 750 billion a, a year, um, and we were yes. 20 billion short on this promise from 10 years ago. Um, and in reality, that's a 10th of what's needed. So um, this is where trust comes in um, and it's very important. Um, it, it, it cannot be understated uh, how, how little trust, um, how much that affects negotiations um, because the rich countries simply don't follow through. And this happens time and time again on both mitigation and adaptation, but it's especially bad for this stuff. See, mitigation makes now makes money. Right. Renewables right. are finally scaled up. And Al Gore said this in his speech, and he's right, and that's great. Um, but if you don't emit a lot and you're gonna sink at 1.5 or 1.7, that doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> as much. Um, so that's the but one, adaptation does make money. Finance. I mean, that's the you know, that's no, the, the exactly the rub, right. Saving lives doesn't make uh, a lot of money, at least in the short term. You know, if you take like a long term view, but, um, you know, that isn't typically the case of finance. So so there's the hundred billion that they didn't. <laughs> if need, anybody and they took agreed. a long term view, we wouldn't be at this point. Right? Well, I mean, yeah, we wouldn't have this, as, be having this Kane's, discussion. Kane, well, Keynes said in the long run, we're all dead. <laughs> and uh, that might be the case. But the G77 asked for 500 billion by 2024. And uh, that would include a 50 50 parity with mitigation and adaptation financing. This is something that was uh, nowhere in the 90s because we were still talking about how to avoid this rise in temperature, but then we, we the temperature rose. So now it's developing countries asking for money um, to do the things that rich countries are asking them to do on mitigation, but also just to simply survive and keep their economies going. So there's the 100 billion that was not met. And G77 asked for 500 billion by 2024. Rich countries said no. Um, and they're going to come up with a new goal next year at COP, but they're going to double adaptation financing. So for the G7, this is, this is great because uh, uh, that doubles their adaptation financing from 8 to 
So problem solved. Um, that's 16% of the <laughs> total of 80 billion, which I was told by two sources, one from the G77 and one from the rich countries, that that 80 billion in reality is more like 30 billion. So Good Lord. it's really pennies. I, I, you know, yeah. I couldn't say this last week, but it's, it's really um, insulting. Now, here's the second is uh, 130 trillion, the Mark Carney banker's promise. Right, the private sector Bloomberg, financing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I used that Bloomberg headline in my piece that said, like, Carney unveils $130 trillion in finance commitments. And you know, I said, wow, this is really irresponsible. Uh, and then I learned the next day that Michael Bloomberg is co-chair of, of GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance, <laughs> on net zero. So that explains the breathless headline. So this $130 trillion is just, I mean, it was announced the same day that the rich countries announced they didn't meet the $100 billion. This this dominated the conference. Finance uh, was the most divisive issue at the conference, and the one that they didn't resolve. So this 130 trillion, which is going to go to mitigation, and it's going to go where it gets highest returns, which is developed in middle income countries. Um, poor countries won't get it. Um, the Maldives, for instance, uh, uh, the last tropical storms there knocked them back into the least developed countries category. So they probably could qualify for World Bank concessional aid now that they, they didn't, but the World Bank is nowhere in this debate. Um, so what I'm saying is this, this is having like immediate real world, world effects, knocking a country down from, from like the status of, of Jamaica or something to, to uh, uh, the lowest income countries is very serious. So the 130 trillion is not, it's, it's a fantasy number, from bankers' minds, and it doesn't mean much. It is hopeful that we're going to have renewables in the, the corporate sector. They're going to throw the money into it, and that's great, but it, it really doesn't do anything for adaptation. And the third issue, third finance issue, is loss and damage, as you mentioned. Um, uh, and this is uh, sometimes characterized as reparations, um, uh, but it uh, I mean, you could frame it that way, but uh, what it's really about is, is um, it, it's not something for a past harm. It's something for, it's compensation for a present harm. It's something that they're actively doing now. So it's not like reparations in the sense of slavery was 150 years ago and, and we're giving out reparations to, you know, it's, it's, it's not this extreme claim. It's really like... Um, what it was the consequences of inaction of the last 20 years. So I was really hopeful because uh, near the end of the conference, the G77 threw down the gauntlet again. They said, uh, we expect a new loss and damage fund. So loss and damage first entered the the debate in the 2000s and it was never discussed never incorporated it was taboo um uh rich countries really didn't want to discuss it um finally they were forced to so they created this thing called the warsaw mechanism that would advise on loss and damage the santiago network later was another advisory group so the g77 said this is enough we need money we need a fund so they asked for one it was rejected, and uh, uh, but there's going to be a new dialogue next year on loss and damage. So um, expect that uh, more talking. 
and lost some damage. So finance, I really think it was it was a, a close, pretty close to a failure on on finance. Um, you could there are there are ways to spin it, but it's pretty disappointing. So uh, I do want to I want to get into the the kind of watered down final agreement and and mm-hmm. you know Alex Sharma crying on the podium and uh-huh. uh, whatnot. But um, before we get get there, I, I, I wanted to uh, to ask you about what happened in terms of the the carbon offset market and kind of regulating the carbon offset market. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, you, you, I, I, maybe you can, you know, school me on this because, um, my impression of carbon offsets is that they're basically a scam. Uh, this is like a, a, a way to create a financial instrument that, um, you pay into to give yourself a clear conscience, but on the other end of it, it's a black box. Like maybe somebody plants a tree, they put up a, a solar panel, uh, who knows, uh, but but I I don't I don't see the connection here necessarily with actually reducing carbon emissions. Um, I, I particularly don't see it. I, I'm not sure if you saw the the report in the Washington Post last week that um, you, you know was sort of shockingly um, eye opening uh, about uh, basically saying that we've been underestimating emissions for years now. Uh, mostly because you know we allow countries to do their sort of own national assessments, and they do things like vastly overstate the effect of a forest in in sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, and like uh, you know kind of just getting getting you know completely wrong, whether through just uh, mm-hmm. mistakes or deliberately, because that you know that that's good for them. Uh, but uh, so uh, can you you know tell me if I'm wrong about carbon offsets, and and I'll stop. Uh, sort of criticizing them, uh, but also talk about what what happened here at the summit uh, with relation to relationship to that uh, particular instrument. Well, I think that's basically right. Um, another way to describe carbon offsets would be uh, simony or indulgences. I mean, you are <laughs> you, you if you have the ability to to pay for your sins, you can. You can pay them off. Um, so there, there have been. It, this goes back to the 1990s, actually. And, and one of the things that the U.S. really pushed for with Kyoto was the inclusion of uh, the the emphasis on carbon sinks, like that. You know, planting trees is going to suck up this carbon. And, and um, uh, the issue that emerged after Paris is that uh, countries were double counting their Kyoto emissions reductions and Paris ones. Also, they were. All kinds of like funny accounting that you would expect, you know, countries to do to meet their emissions, just like a company would do, and they are doing. So uh, at at COP twenty six, um, the the big thing to work out was what's called the Paris Rule Book, uh, mainly in Article six of the Paris Agreement, which is about carbon markets. Um, so there there actually was real progress on these issues. In part because they're not really controversial among the developing or among the developed countries. Um, like this is this is the market mechanism, right? So we will, you know we want this to work. Um, and this is like the 130 trillion G fans. They really want the carbon markets to work because this will it's it's really going to be um, a big money maker, and uh, that's that's a good thing in some ways, um, but. Uh, you know, you need to be clear about what and whose interest these things work. So uh, you have carbon markets 
as opposed to a carbon tax um, and dividend. So instead we have emissions trading instead of this like central tax. There was part of that in the Paris Agreement, but it wasn't worked out. We got the markets worked out though. So what they did at, at COP26 was uh, uh, finalize some rules on transparency um, so monitoring emissions, uh, uh, fixed one of the loopholes about accounting, it looks like, about double counting. Um, so those should be functional pretty soon. Uh, and that, that would be seen as, as a success, uh, especially from the, the developed countries. Um, of course, it's not going to be perfect. Uh, and there are, are you know different exemptions, but that's going to happen. Um, but yes, it's not enough. They, it, it's not going to be nearly enough to reduce emissions. And it gives, if you can pay to pollute, you know, you get to. Right. So you it's, get it's to just keep definitely, doing it. Uh, yeah. you know, unequal. But. And, and there's still, I mean, there's still this sort of, well, uh, let's, let's get into the final agreement because this, this yeah, leads yeah. me into to, uh, part of it. The, 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 the final agreement that was reached finally on Saturday, a day later than than scheduled. Um, there are a few things that stood out, you know, as I was reading about this. One is there's sort of um, a lot of uh, hay is made of the fact that there's actually an explicit mention of fossil fuels and the need to uh, reduce the use of fossil fuels, which is, I gather, sort of groundbreaking uh, for this kind of summit. That that. The message I get from that is like, that's just really sad. We're in 2021, and this is the level of like milestone that we've set out for ourselves that we mentioned finally uh, the need to get rid of fossil fuels. Um, so that that I guess was the you know the plus side that this this act this document actually talks about coal and uh, fossil fuel subsidies. On the on the other hand, um, you know after. India, in particular, sort of as you mentioned, led the charge on behalf of the, um, I guess, developing world. Although really, it's the coal burning world. Uh, the language about phasing it was supposed to be about phasing out fossil fuels. It's now about phasing down fossil fuels. It's about getting phasing down coal. It's about phasing down not fossil fuel subsidies. It was supposed to be getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies. Now it's getting rid of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, which is one of those, again, like we, we talked about earlier, one of those things that's so nicely subjective that it could mean anything or nothing. Uh, in this case, probably nothing. Um, there's no, uh, apparently, you know, they just decided to punt on uh, getting countries to agree to tighter and quicker emissions reduction pledges, which was one of the things. You know, there was a report that uh, came out during the summit that said, "Hey, we're we're actually, you know, if everybody implements the pledges they made at Paris, we're on track for like a 2.4 degree warming world, which is chaotic, you know, sort of catastrophe level." Um, so there was a there was supposed to be an effort to do a, a, a tighter deadlines. That's got punted to next year. What was what was your overall sense of of the document that that came out of this uh, at the end of this? Yeah, that was that was another really important issue um, uh, during the conference or in the early like the first or second day at UNEP. What you're talking about, I think, is the UNEP emissions gap report. Yes, um, which was issued. Yeah, and you know, Gore said this thing that if everybody implements everything that was agreed to so far, and that included the side agreements, I guess. 
we would be able to live in a 1.8 world. Well, we haven't come close to ever meeting any of those commitments. So that's not good. But the UNEP report, I think, was more honest and, and um, uh, very, very serious. And that had an effect on the conference. Um, and people talked about that. Everyone was talking about that report. Um, now, on coal, uh, you know, as, as to what, what was the effect, um, you're right. They, they, this, this language was changed from, uh, to phase down, not phase out right. um, uh, coal and, and coal subsidies. It did not include, that statement did not include oil and natural gas. Um, so I, I have an idea about this, but I'm just trying to figure it out myself. Um, India took took the heat. Um, so it's China plus the G77 is the negotiating group um, right. because China, when it joined the United Nations in 1971, it, it said uh, it, it didn't want to join the G77 because that's about getting a better seat at the table in global capitalism. They were about overthrowing it. Yeah. yeah. So not anymore. But um <laughs> So, oh, and, and so the other thing with coal was they added the word unabated, which maintains this like yeah. mythical idea of clean coal. That uh, I mean, we yeah. again, the fact that we're still on this in 2021 is just incredibly frustrating and discouraging to me. But, uh, well, yeah, that, that was the other I mean, way it, they watered it, it down. It, I mean, no one would say that phrase with a straight face inside cough, I think, even <laughs> clean coal. But, um, you know, natural gas is just totally, oh, I mean, it's, it's, of course, better than coal. Coal's the worst. But um, I, the reason why India went out there and took the hit is, I think, because China wanted them to. Um, and Australia also benefits from this. What I think happened is this U.S.-China side agreement that was talked about that uh, it came about in like, a, I don't know, Thursday or Friday. It was a surprise thing. And they said it was, an, it was just language, but it was saying like, if we can work together on one thing, it's the climate crisis and we are going to do that. And I think that's wonderful. Great. I'm so glad to see that. Um, uh, but what I think was agreed to there is that the 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 U.S., which was in favor of this coal language, um, gave that up for some something, some quid pro quo. Maybe I'm conspiratorial here, but I think there was some kind of uh, geopolitics or other deal that had India take the flack for China and Australia. I don't know, but um, there's it's really significant that the sentence did not include oil. Or natural gas, which uh, India really does need coal for its developments. It just relies on it way more. Um, we need to do something about that. But uh, it, it would really be a major ask for India in a way that it's not for the United States. So um, that was a dis divisive thing. But I, I think it, it is it is progress because um, what what I saw in the negotiations is. And, and this was true of, you know, back to the 1970s, uh, North-South dialogue negotiations is all of these are a give or take. Every country has to come expecting to give. So even if they don't have anything to give, like resources, they have to give on their positions. Now, it's always 90-10, like the give and take, 90% give on the developing countries and 10%, especially on the U.S., um, so uh, I really think so much more could be accomplished 
coming there with a full hand, with a real hand. Um, and if you're not going to meet your pledge anyway, then might as well pledge bigger. Maybe, maybe you'll fail larger, you know, right, higher. Right. Um, so that's, that's the coal, uh, uh, agreement. Um, the NDCs were also scaled up the national determined contributions. I think like 80 countries submitted them before I might be wrong about that number. Um, but most countries submitted them. Um, the talk is always about ambition, scaling up ambition. Um, and this is per the Paris procedure. They're supposed to update their NDCs, their targets every, I don't know if it was five years or 10 years, but they're doing it earlier now. So um, really there's some procedural changes that are potentially important, but the finance is a massive disappointment for developing countries. The other side agreement, you mentioned the U.S.-China thing, which, yeah, it was just sort of like this we can do it moment. Like, even though we want to, you know, mm -hmm. we're like in uh, at each other's throats and everything else, we can work together on this. We're not going to commit to anything, but we can do it, mm -hmm. uh, which was sort of a weird kind of moment. But uh, who knows? Uh, one of the other side agreements was uh, uh, had to do with methane. Is that right? Is there any yeah, positive yeah, takeaway there? there? Um, God, I, 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 I'm not sure. I, I know that there was a methane agreement, but I, I couldn't tell you the, the specifics. I know that methane is, um, which was, was not a topic of conversation, um, uh, methane's a lot dirtier than um, uh, we think it is. Um, it dissipates in the atmosphere faster than, than a fossil fuel, other fossil fuels. So that's why it's seen as a transition fuel. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I th I'm not sure exactly what the agreement was on nothing. Do you know? Um, I no, I, I sort of, I mean, I have the sense there was like, again, I mean, like everything, there was sort of a pledge to uh, reduce methane emissions that's written up in a way that it's not enforceable and you really don't even know how they're yeah. going to, uh, how it's going to be tracked. So yeah, I get, I get, I, mean, I get the sense that it's, uh, it's sort of toothless, but, but you know, it's again, there was an agreement to in principle to do this. It's kind of like the deforestation thing. Like there's an agreement yes. in yeah. principle to stop, you know, to end deforestation, but you know, I mean, it's not, there's no, uh, there's no teeth to it. There's no, I mean, nobody's going to come along in, uh, 10 years and say, Hey, you didn't do this. You're going to pay a fine or something. It's like, you know, we move on. No. Um, I, I think from talking to, um, I'll say this on, on methane real quick. The, the, the takeaway for me from methane is that one, it's dirtier than, than we thought. And it's not really a transition fuel, but two, there was a, a pavilion called the methane moment. And, I just couldn't stop <laughs> laughing when I walked by it, thinking like it must smell like shit. Like everyone's yeah, farting. really. <laughs> yeah. What a moment! But that was the methane moment. So um, uh, that's nothing. But um, uh, should what? What was the other? Uh, no, that was. I mean, that was it. It was. I, I wanted to ask about that, and, and I, I guess I mean we're at a point where we should should probably wrap up anyway. So mm -hmm. I, I'd like, you know, having. Got, you know, experienced this conference and, and seen how it ended. Um, do you feel more or less optimistic about the chances <laughs> of dealing with climate change than you were before? Yeah. I, I feel like I'm a, almost at the point of uh, nihilism on this issue, and I try not to be. 
because it, it really can can take you down a rabbit hole. Um, but I also feel like there's this sort of cottage industry uh, of climate optimism that's founded on nothing. Uh, that's just meant to keep people from getting, you know, angry or, or getting, you know, too doom and gloom. Um, and, and it goes hand in hand, I think, with this uh, sort of, which we've seen in, in many environmental issues, plastics and, and a bunch of other things, uh, not just climate change. This this attempt to kind of shift the blame onto the individual and away from companies and, oh, and yes. countries. Uh, I think those things go hand in hand. Uh, and so it's like, you know, you can, you can fight climate change, just plant a tree yes. and everything will be fine. And like, or put up a solar panel and it'll be great. Um, on the other hand, I, I understand that it, it does nobody any good if we all just kind of curl up into a ball and, and, you know, uh, kind of moan, you know, bewail the, the future that's coming. Uh, so I wonder, you know, if, where you stand on this and, and if, if the summit did anything to sway you one way or the other. Yeah. Well, it definitely convinced me of the futility of consumer-based uh, climate activism. That is, that uh, this will be solved by personal choices and not governments. Um, if anything, I, I think uh, I'm more convinced of the importance of national governments and of states um, uh, uh, in this process. Um, I think the the consumer pitch that um, you know will offer these nudges and incentives. Um, it just isn't going to do it. Markets are not going to direct uh, uh, finance and investment to the places where it's needed most. Um, we see this with uh, Jamaica, which which has experimented with a, a new program um, that's actually quite innovative. Um, it's better than it sounds, catastrophe bonds. But these catastrophe bonds, what they do is an automatic stabilizer that pays out when a tropical storm reaches a certain threshold. So if they're not going to get the money from uh, governments, you know, they are turning to markets in, in actually creative ways. Um, but uh, I'll say two things. Um, first, uh, uh, so I had have, I have conference brain in there and you really get like kind of, you're so in, into it. And if you're, you know, with like the delegation, you're all talking. So when this US China thing announcement came out, I was like, oh my God, this is, it's like detente, you know, like this is like an amazing thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was yeah. like, this, you know, I, I was like, this is both necessary and possible and necessary, you know, like to others. And, you know, if the Soviet US and the Soviets could do it, certainly we can do it. Um, and, um, you know, it's a bit tempered when, when I get back to Philadelphia and pick up a new newspaper. But, um, uh, so that's part of it is like, I, again, when the, uh, the, the G77 announced the, the loss and damage is so controversial. When they announced the new fund, like we're calling for this Glasgow fund, I was like, oh my God, they're, they're going to get it. You know, they're going to have to give them this fund. And they didn't, and they still accepted it. So with optimism, I think there is an industry of climate optimism, uh, but it, it, you should, it, it matters who you listen to. So if it's climate optimism from, you know, uh, most governments or, or corporations, sorry for the sirens, no said, it's, it's can't, it's can't. Right. Um, but uh, I do hear and feel climate optimism from the people who are pushing for these things, because if they're not optimistic, then they're not going to have a future at all. 
Um, and the guy who pushed, who's been pushing for the loss and damage fund for years is this guy, Salim Ulhaq. Um, uh, and uh, that is an example of climate optimism. This is his idea, this fund, and he spearheaded the effort. And you know, he still finds the things that are, are worth preserving uh, uh, from COP. Um, so I think you have to have, uh, uh, like I said, the Gramsci maxim, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Um, but I, I, I will say one last thing that I am, I'm convinced of now after the conference, which is we probably, and I say we, developed countries probably will, I think we will be able to avoid the worst effects of climate change in our countries with the amount of money and the scaling of technology. I am optimistic that, that we're, we're because only because it's profitable, only because it's profitable. Yeah. I'm optimistic that we'll reduce emissions enough so that the United States is, is livable for the most part. Um, but that is absolutely not true for so many parts of the world. And we're going to have a huge problem with climate migration, um, with uh, uh, countries that, I mean, that, that are not going to be there anymore, or uh, sea level rises, even the ones that have happened now, take Pakistan, um, their drinking water is already salinated along the coast. And there are a ton of cities this is going to happen to, um, and has, is already happening to. So sadly, I'm op more optimistic for the rich countries than the poor ones. But um, we'll see next year at uh, a famous uh, uh, diving destination, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt for, for COP27. Well, no better location, really, for... <laughs> For yeah. serious environmental, I mean, you know, Abdel Fattah Sisi is uh, unparalleled mm -hmm. for his uh, commitment in in that regard. Um, I will, I will say, just to you know, put a put a point on it. I, I found it hard to to derive anything positive from an agreement that was announced by uh, the president of the conference, Alok Sharma, uh, mm -hmm. in tears. Apologizing for the way that it had yeah. been negotiated and the the uh, amount that it, you know the the amount of kind of weasel language yeah. that had been injected into the draft. It was the cold pledge that he was crying about. Right, right. I believe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to look at that and think that anything positive was really accomplished. But who knows? <laughs> who knows? Um, I'm doing. I'm doing my best. Yeah. The, yeah. There you go. <laughs> try to try to find Again, the silver lining. And it's like, you know, I, I was I was inside this and, you know, talking to people from the secretariat and the delegations. And, right. you know, you 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 feel like you have more optimism because you're part of the process. In yeah. A way. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, I think I mean, I was reading over the, uh, you know, 60, 70 page reports this morning of everything that's been hammered out and. Uh, no, I mean the finance thing is so big, so unjust, and so catastrophic, and erodes all trust in the negotiations. And this is based on trust. You have to have, you have to be able to trust that the governments are going to uh, 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 get there. And the rich countries simply are not doing it. Yeah. And this year was not different. Well, on that note, uh, that seems like a good place to. To end here, Mike Michael Franzak, uh, again, 
thank you uh, for doing these pieces uh, for foreign exchanges. Thanks for coming on here and, and giving uh, subscribers a little something, something extra. Um, and, uh, the book, uh, which I mentioned in, in my intro and you, you mentioned as well, yes. uh, global inequality in American foreign policy in the 1970s will be coming uh, in June. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, June 2022 University press. So keep your eyes out. Yeah. It's probably too early. I would guess for pre-orders, but, uh, you know, keep your eyes open for it when it, uh, when it comes. So again, Mike, thank you so much. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, touch base again on this i'm sure at some point thank you derek it was a pleasure one last time i want to thank mike franzak for coming on the program uh for to cap off his coverage uh, of cop 26 for the newsletter i also want to thank him for writing uh his reports from the summit for the newsletter uh if you haven't already checked them out the links are in the show description please do that uh, to the rest of you, thanks for uh, listening to the podcast. As always, thank you for supporting Foreign Exchanges. Um, I don't know when the next uh, of our podcasts will be. We're on a somewhat irregular schedule these days, but uh, you know, be on the lookout for it. Until then, as always, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>